Well, in 2015, people on both sides of the Atlantic mark the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. On June 15, 1215, at Runnymede, a reluctant King John agreed to the Baron's terms in a document which came to be known as Magna Carta. Though the king never meant to keep his promises, Magna Carta survived. Down through the centuries, it has been a symbol of opposition to arbitrary government. Magna Carta came to America with the English colony's first charters. And in the years leading up to the revolution, Americans framed their arguments against British policies by drawing upon the language of the early charters and upon Magna Carta as their birthright. Having declared independence, Americans turned to writing and implementing state constitutions and ultimately a federal constitution. And Magna Carta left an indelible mark on all these developments. At the core of this legacy is the rule of law. The thesis that no one, including those in government, is above the law. Now another principle traceable to the great charter is constitutional supremacy. The idea of a super statute against which ordinary laws are to be measured. Constitutional provisions guaranteeing due process of law derive directly from the Magna Carta's assurance of proceedings according to the law of the land. And the uses of successive generations in England and America have made of the charter have given us the idea of an organic, evolving constitution, one that can be adapted to the needs and challenges of our own times. This should all sound very, very current. Our speaker, A.E. Dick Howard, is the White Burkett Miller Professor of Law and Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. A native of Richmond, he's a graduate of the University of Richmond and received his law degree from the University of Virginia. He was also a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. After graduating from law school, he served as a law clerk to Justice Hugo L. Black in the Supreme Court of the United States. Active in public affairs, Professor Howard was executive director of the commission that wrote Virginia's new constitution, current constitution, and directed the successful referendum campaign for its ratification. He's been counsel to the General Assembly of Virginia and a consultant to state and federal bodies, including the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. Professor Howard has written extensively on constitutional law and history, including a book appropriately entitled The Road from Runnymede, Magna Carta and Constitutionalism in America. And recently, the University of Virginia conferred on him its Thomas Jefferson Award, the highest honor the university accords a member of the faculty. Please join me in a very warm VHS welcome home to Dick Howard. Thank you for that warm welcome. I am so glad to see my friends in my native city turn out. There may be a, a former student or two in the audience, and I hope you're not going to use this occasion to complain about the grade I gave you in your class. Um, I want to dedicate this lecture to two important ladies. Uh, one is Queen Elizabeth, who sometime today reaches the amazing benchmark of having been sovereign of England longer than any reigning king or queen in English history. And the other important lady that to whom I would like to dedicate the uh, lecture is a member of the long-serving member of the VHF staff, um, Pam C., who has celebrated her 40th wedding anniversary to the same man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell the Guinness Book of Records about that. Um, we're here to talk about something that happened 800 years ago uh, at Runnymede, June the 15th, 1215, and. I suppose the central question that I want to put for our consideration today is, why should we care? I mean, it's a long time ago, a reluctant king, a, a group of unhappy barons hammering out this compromise at Runnymede. What, what difference does it make to us? Well, let me suggest several um, milestones, some on the other side of the Atlantic and the others here, that 
get us from where, what happened back in the Middle Ages in England to the contemporary American scene. We began, of course, with King John. Um, I met King John, well, actually, I didn't meet King John. <laughs> I was first made aware of King John when I was a very small child, and my parents read to me, and one of the books was A.A. Uh, a. Milne's Now We Are Six. You know, A.A. A. Milne, who created Winnie the Pooh, all of you have been charmed by his stories. Now We Are Six has a poem called King John's Christmas. And it begins, if I remember, something like this. It says, um, King John was not a good man. He had his many ways. And sometimes no one spoke to him for days and days and days. <laughs> well, you're a little kid, and you imagine being shunned. That's terrible that nobody will talk to you. And I was, being young, I said, he couldn't have been that bad. Well, I grew up and read about King John, and he was that bad. <laughs> He may have been worse than that, in fact. He was certainly one of the most maladroit kings ever to serve, ever to reign on the, on the English throne. Um, it's no accident that no king of England since his time has ever been called King John. I mean, there will never be a John II because the name, at least for kings, has been obviously tainted. He was not only a mad, bad man in a moral sense, he was really an inept, feckless ruler. He managed to make enemies on every front. Uh, to begin with, he lost most of the English possessions in Normandy, where the barons had come from after the Norman conquest. And he, as a military leader, he was really hopeless. Uh, that scored against him. He quarreled with the Pope over the naming of the Archbishop of Canterbury, finally settled that by having to give in to the Pope's wishes. And most importantly, he quarreled with the barons. These were the ruling class, the noble class in England, and he had pressed them from every side to extract all the money he could in support of his military adventures and his other various royal needs uh, in ways that were simply overbearing and uh, unjust. So finally, all these grievances accumulated to the point where the result was something like civil war. The barons actually took to the field under arms and at, at length, King John was obliged to come to terms, to compromise with the barons, and that produced the meeting at Runnymede in, on June the 15th, 1215. Well, it's clear that King John never meant to keep that promise. He, was an un, he was an unwilling bargainer. He, in fact, finally importuned the, the pope to nullify Magna Carta. So several weeks after its being sealed at Runnymede, uh, the Pope stepped in and said, it's null and void. So that might have been the end of it. If that was all the story, we could all adjourn at this point and go to those, one of those fermenting taverns and have a drink as <laughs> good Virginians. But the story doesn't end there. Magna Carta did survive. And one reason it did survive was that King John didn't. Uh, he, he died the next year, 1216. Um, one of the chroniclers said that he died of a surfeit of peaches and new cider. <laughs> so if you go to a party this weekend and your host offers you peaches and new cider, I'd, I'd push the table, I'd push this chair back and say, no, thank you. I don't think I'll, I'll have any of that. So King John dies in 1216. His successor, Henry III, is nine years old. Now, this is medieval England. How, how long is a nine-year-old king going to live? You know, the long knives are out. Uh, um, you've all seen Game of Thrones, you know what it's like, or you've watched Wolf Hall. I mean, you know, this is, these are really dark and, and difficult times. So Henry III's advisors hit on an idea. They basically said, we, we've got a, a public relations gimmick. We will have Henry III, through his regent, reissue Magna Carta. And that was, that was done. And so that began the tradition that each success, successive monarch one after another, reissued Magna Carta until finally in the year 1297 it was put on the statute books of England. So through that fortuity of circumstances, Magna Carta re-emerged despite uh, John's effort to make it uh, null and void. Now I'm going to skip over the, uh, the Tudor period. Again, you've watched Wolf Hall. Uh, the reign of Henry VIII is not remembered as a era of constitutional government. Let us say that. <laughs> Ask the wives of Henry VIII. Um, due process was not 
closely observed during Henry VIII's time. So passing through the Tudor period, the, the Magna Carta story really begins to take on new life in the 17th century. And as Virginians, you will appreciate the, con the congruence of dates here because it's about the time that the Jamestown colony was first planted that James VI of Scotland, the Stuart King, became James I of England after the uh, death of Queen Elizabeth in 1603. So it's in the 17th century, the Stuarts brought with them to the throne the idea of the divine right of kings. And that's another idea that's not really compatible with constitutional government, certainly wasn't acceptable to the members of parliament. Uh, the leader in parliament, Sir Edward Cook, Lord Cook, uh, was surely the greatest lawyer of his generation, a great commentator. He'd been chief judge of King's Bench, he'd been attorney general, and he wrote extensive commentaries on Magna Carta. So when the parliament pushed back against the pretensions of, the, of uh, King James and then King Charles, uh, it was Cook who really led the argument saying, as he was quoted in saying, Magna Carta is such a fellow, he will have no sovereign. In other words, Cook was arguing that even the king was limited by the precepts and norms of Magna Carta. Well, if you know a little bit about 17th century English history, uh, you might agree with me that it was a simply dreadful time for most people. It was the Civil War in England was every bit as terrible brother against brother as the Civil War in America. Turbulent period, it led to the execution of Charles I, the Cromwellian regime, the restoration of the Stuarts in 1660, and finally in 1688, the so-called glorious revolution that finally ousted the Stuarts from power. Um, I don't know if historians still call it the glorious revolution or not. That <laughs> I guess if you're on the losing side, it was not so glorious. But that's, I say that's a period of a turbulent, questing period. It finally ends with the famous English Bill of Rights of 1689, which in many ways was the foundation for modern government in the United Kingdom. So you pass through a century where, on the English side, things are very turbulent. It's also the century during which American colonies, beginning with Jamestown in 1607, are being planted, and finally Georgia just around the turn of the 18th century. Um, I was just up in Boston a few months ago giving something called the James Otis Lecture, Faddle Hall, one of the great you know, historic buildings of Boston, and I was impertinent enough to tell my Boston audience that, you know, my friends in Massachusetts are very good at words, but they're not always very good at numbers. They have this curious idea somehow they don't realize that 1607 is a lower number than 1620. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, you like that line better than they did. <laughs> I have to tell you that. In the audience, there was a woman who was on the board of Plymouth Plantation, and she was not happy with Professor Howard, and she was happy to see me go back to Virginia. <laughs> well, here's where Virginia comes into the story front and center. If you read the Virginia Company Charter of 1606, the founding document of Virginia's colony, a lot, there's a lot in there about, oh, they're going to find gold and silver, and the king's going to get his share. Everybody's going to get rich. It's really quite a commercial enterprise, but there's one passage in the Charter which is really striking, and it's historically speaking the most important thing about the Charter, and that is the language that guarantees to the immigrants to Virginia, the settlers here, the privileges, franchises, and immunities that they would have enjoyed in England. In other words, if they pulled up roots and came to this wilderness called Virginia and took all the chances which they were clearly taking, they didn't leave their rights behind. And that provision also promised that those rights would descend to the progeny of the settlers down through the generations. Well, whatever the drafters of that charter thought they were doing, they planted a seed because the colonists who came to Virginia and then successively the other colonists took those guarantees at face value. They took them quite seriously. They really became part of American constitutionalism. For example, in Massachusetts, there was an interesting quarrel where some dissenters in that theocratic colony were objecting that they were not receiving the benefits of Magna Carta, and the magistrates of the colony felt obliged to reply to that in what's 
come to be called as the Parallels of Massachusetts. In one column, they had the provisions of Magna Carta. In the other column, they had provisions of Massachusetts law. And their argument obviously was, uh, we are in fact giving you what, that to which you are entitled. Well, that's the colonial period, that's the 17th century. Uh, the ideas of Magna Carta and English common law were reinforced down through the generations by the importation of English law books, especially Lord Cook, the same Cook that I've already mentioned. In the private and public libraries of Virginia, for example, you'd find Cook's reports and Cook's commentaries. There were provisions in the charters that required that uh, ordinances passed by colonial assemblies would have to be sent back to England to be sure they were compatible with English law. Now, this is not constitutional review, but it is beginning to instill the notion that when you pass a law, there's some external standard by which you measure whether that law is, in fact, valid or not. So that takes us to the eve of revolution. You pass through the early part of the 18th century. When James Otis went into a Boston courtroom in 1760 to argue the famous writs of assistance case, he was arguing against the use of what we today would call a general search warrant, the, a piece of paper that said you could go in and search for anything you liked, as opposed to a special warrant which names what the uh, police are supposed to be looking for. James Otis argued against those writs and he made what we today would call a constitutional argument. He, he said these writs are unconstitutional and he meant that in the sense I think a modern lawyer would mean that. And he cited Cook and Magna Carta. Uh, Lord Cook had decided in 1610 a case called Dr. Bonham's case. And in it, there's so some debate as to what it actually meant, but it was at least dictum, where Cook said laws that were against right reason were null and void. So Cook was basically planting the idea of unconstitutional legislation, and Otis was building on that in his arguments in Boston in 1760. Now, this is the point at which American ideas and British ideas part. Because Otis's argument made no sense whatever to people in London. They had, they had no idea what he was talking about because by that point, you had Blackstone's commentaries on the law of England, and Blackstone laid it down that Parliament was sovereign, that what Parliament said was the law. They called the shots. And there was no other authority that could question Parliament. So the idea that, that somehow an act of parliament could be beyond its authority was simply unimaginable to Blackstone and those who followed him. Whereas on the American side, you've got James Otis building on Lord Cook, developing this notion that even a properly constituted legislative authority has limits on its authority. Well, you, you know the story of the revolution. It's a familiar one. Uh, you have the Stamp Act. Uh, enacted after the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, as it was called in this country. When that war concluded, the British had gained a lot of territory and won some famous victories, but at great cost. It was an expensive war. So not surprisingly, the parliament, the government in London said, well, we protected the colonies on their frontiers from the French and from the Indians. They should help pay for it. So the Stamp Act was the first time Parliament had passed an internal tax for the American colonies. They had customs duties and that sort of thing, but the, this was the first internal tax. And as you know from your history books, uh, the Americans weren't having it. They said, this is not something which Parliament can impose on us. Uh, they were outraged. They complained first about, they said, we have a right to consent to taxation. And secondly, if these cases come up in courts, we're entitled to trial by jury. They were the two main complaints that they made. This was in the Stamp Act Congress in 1765. Well, then came the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> the Sons of Liberty go down dressed as Indians and toss tea into the party, into the harbor. And the result on the English side was to close the port of Boston, put it under a blockade, replace the legislative assembly, quarter troops in the houses of Bostonians and the like. And again, as you know from your history, this sent a ripple of outrage through all the colonies, Patrick Henry, for example, here in, in Richmond. And the other colonies came to the support of Massachusetts by way of committees of correspondence and the like. Continental Congress met and 
decided to shape resolutions against British policy. And, and, and what were they going to say? They talked about taxation and about trial by jury. The interesting part of the debate was on what foundation would they put those resolutions? Some of the members of the Congress said it's uh, against the British Constitution. Other members said it's a contravention of the promises made to us in the colonial charters. Some other delegates said it's more than that, it's against natural law. It's against natural right. It's against the, the law of God. Well, these were different theoretical ways to make the argument, and what the Continental Congress finally did was simply merge them all together in characteristically American fashion, sort of saying, okay, put whatever label you like on it. Call it natural law, call it the British Constitution, call it colonial charters. It all adds up to the same thing. The British are doing things which invade the rights of Americans. Um, if you ever wonder why American constitutional law is not very neat and tidy, one reason is from the beginning we've been willing to be eclectic in our way of marshalling arguments. Well, now this takes us up to independence and the beginning of constitutional government in America, and obviously the question I want to ask is, what was the place of Magna Carta there? Well, it begins at Williamsburg, May of 1776, where the body that was making laws for Virginia instructed our delegates at Philadelphia to introduce the resolution for independence. And on the same day, they set to work on the first Virginia Constitution. Actually, they, they set to work on two documents. I think it's interesting. It wasn't a single constitution. It was first a Declaration of Rights setting out inherent inalienable rights that do not depend on government. They precede government. And then they went, set to work on a frame of government for Virginia. Uh, and that, that put in motion the making of state constitutions, um, which really blended uh, John Locke, the social compact, the compact notion of government, with English ideas such as those drawn from Magna Carta. Now, as you perhaps know, Thomas Jefferson hated that first Virginia Constitution. He spent the next 50 years complaining about it. Uh, I've always thought one reason he was upset was that he wasn't there, <laughs> right? And Jefferson couldn't imagine you could do anything like write a constitution without him being on hand to do it. His fundamental objection was this. He said the same body of men that is writing ordinary laws wrote this constitution. And that means the constitution is no more than an ordinary law. They can make it, they can unmake it. He said, a constitution has to be made by a separate body of people ordained to make a constitution. So here's where I have to give credit to my friends in Massachusetts for accomplishing in that state what we had not done in Virginia. In 1780, the first Massachusetts constitution came into being because of objections in the western part of the state, the Berkshires, uh, more or less the frontier. They objected because the potentates in Boston wanted to do what Virginians had done, namely promulgate a constitution. So what they finally hit upon was a device where the citizens of Massachusetts elected delegates to a constitutional convention, which then wrote a constitution, which was in turn put back to the people for their vote in referendum. And that was something the Europeans had never thought of. This was an American contribution to constitutional thought. This is where John Adams comes into the picture. The convention in Boston had um, uh, a committee, which in turn had a subcommittee of three people, John Adams, Samuel Adams, Samuel Bowden, and the three in turn gave the work to John Adams because he was the, the workhorse of the crowd. They knew that he would happily do the job while they went off to have a drink. Um, <laughs> go, go into a bar sometime and ask for a John Adams beer. You get a blank look, right? There is no... <laughs> Ask for a Samuel Adams beer, and then, then they'll, they'll happily hand one over to you. So S Sam was the, perhaps the drinker in the crowd, and John was the constitutionalist. So we now have the, the foundations being laid for the idea of an American constitution, which takes us from the state constitutions to Philadelphia in 1787. Now, here is where more new ground was being charted. It's interesting to me, as far as I can tell, Magna Carta was never mentioned at the Philadelphia Convention. 
Now, we don't have a complete account. We have Madison's notes. We don't have a transcript of the debate, so it could have been mentioned, but I'm not aware that it was. Now, how can that be? I mean, I've led you to the point of suggesting that Magna Carta was an integral part of the American story up to that point. How, how come it disappears from the stage? Well, the Federalists would have argued that Magna Carta was simply a grant from the king, a concession on the part of the king, whereas in America, the people themselves were ordaining and establishing a constitution. Secondly, they would argue that where Magna Carta bound the king, the, this new constitution was meant to, to bind all the branches of government, legislative, executive, and, <clears throat> and judicial. So they said that if, if they were asked the question, well, what about Magna Carta? They'd say, well, it served its purpose. It's not really terribly relevant now. This is where the Federalists made a nearly fatal mistake. This is familiar history to all of you. And that is they failed to add a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. There was a motion. George Mason and Elbridge Gerry and others wanted a Bill of Rights. It didn't happen. And they handed the Anti-Federalist, as they came to be called, an argument against ratifying the new Constitution. Uh, they said they could say they're taking our rights away. They've made no provision for rights. Where's the Bill of Rights? Well, Madison, being a canny politician as well as a great theorist, took the point and urged on by Jefferson, he finally said, OK, we get the point just ratify the Constitution, and at the first Congress, we will propose amendments. He did that. He was a member of the first Congress. He shaped and winnowed the various proposals that finally became what we call the, um, the, the, the Bill of Rights. So what you have is an interesting American story. It's partly innovation, federalism, uh, judicial review. These are very American kinds of things. Innovation on the one hand combined with tradition on the other, which is to say the um, traditions of Magna Carta. So how would I sum up what the legacy of Magna Carta is in our time? And what, what has it contributed? Well, first, what we call the rule of law. This is the iconic symbol of the notion that no one is above the law, that everyone, including people in power, are subject to the law. Well, you know, American lawyers like to talk about rule of law as if it was a self-evident proposition. Um, I was at a meeting in what was then Lindenburg, now St. Petersburg, back in the early 90s, um, working with the drafters of what became the first post-communist Russian constitution. Um, this was back in the days, you may <laughs> remember when we thought that Russia might join the family of liberal constitutional democracies. <laughs> It seems like, a, in the age of Putin, it seems like a long time ago. Well, I was working with these lawyers and judges. I don't speak any Russian, so we were working through a translator, very good translator. But I discovered at one point, I realized she was translating the American phrase rule of law as um, socialist legality. <laughs> and I had to say, no, no, that's not exactly what we talk about, mean when we talk about the rule of law. Uh, second legacy of Magna Carta is the articulation of fundamental rights, the notion that there are rights which are inherent in good government and in the human condition, rights that are articulated in Magna Carta, in the English Petition of Right, in the English Bill of Rights, in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, in the American Bill of Rights, and indeed beyond that to things like the United Nations Conventions and Covenants. Thirdly, I think the idea of a written constitution. As you know, the United Kingdom still doesn't have a written constitution, but practically every other country in the world does. You know, countries adopt written constitutions the way they adopt a, a flag or a national anthem. It's just something you're bound to have to prove that you're a, an independent nation. And I think in the Anglo-American tradition, the notion of writing it down, as the medieval charters did, and as modern constitutions do, is very much one of the legacies of Magna Carta. Fourthly, I would argue, and here we get to the core of the matter, that Magna Carta begins a process that has resulted in American constitutionalism with the idea of constitutional supremacy, the notion of a law that trumps other laws, a law that's superior to laws uh, that's uh, on an ordinary level. 
Recall that James um, Otis argument in Boston in 1760. He was making an argument about constitutional supremacy that we can recognize today, and it led finally in 1803 to John Marshall's famous decision in Marbury versus Madison. Uh, if there are those of you in the audience who studied law or have ever read Marbury versus Madison, first time I read it, what really struck me about the opinion was that it begins with an appeal to the general principles of jurisprudence. The whole idea of a constitution, surely, says Marshall, must be that it's going to be supreme law and therefore courts must apply it and accept it. And if a, even an act of Congress, if that's incompatible with the constitution, then it has to be struck down. It's only late in the opinion, towards the end of the opinion, where almost as an afterthought, he says, oh yes, and by the way, there's a supremacy clause of the Constitution that says that this Constitution and all laws made in pursuance thereof shall be the supreme law of the land. Well, today I think you'd write an opinion beginning with the text of the Constitution. It's very meaningful to me that Marshall begins with principle and theory and the understanding of what constitutions are all about, and then supplements that by pointing to the text. I think what he's saying basically is even if there weren't a supremacy clause, the Supreme Court would still be obliged to come out as Marshall did in Marbury versus Madison. Uh, fifthly, and this again I think comes to the core of what Magna Carta contributes to our time, is a tradition of organic, unfolding, uh, evolving constitutional traditions and, and, and norms, rather like the common law itself. I mean, the civil law countries, a, a judge in France, for example, is simply takes the facts of the case and applies them to the code, to the code section. We in the common law world look at precedent and how the organic way the law has actually developed, and the law takes on new meaning with uh, each generation. So we have in America uh, a somewhat controversial label is the living constitution. Um, I didn't see Justice Scalia in the room, so I guess I'm <laughs> permitted to use that phrase without being jumped from, from the other side of the room. But th think about concepts like due process of law or cruel and unusual punishment. In the Eighth Amendment cases, the death penalty cases, for example, you have very modern cases where for example, the court has at one time uh, rejected the constitutional attack on the death penalty as applied to very youthful offenders or to the somewhat mentally retarded. Those was two cases in 1989. And then only a few years later, the same court overruled those earlier cases and have forbidden those practices as being unconstitutional. And these, these are examples of how constitutional norms uh, evolve. Um, Justice Kennedy, one of the uh, key votes in modern Supreme Court cases, seems to have accepted this way of thinking about the Constitution. Um, here's what he said in a case in 2003, Lawrence versus Texas. He said, those who drew and ratified the due process clause did not presume to know the components of liberty in its manifold possibilities. The times can blind us to certain truths, and later generations can see that laws once thought necessary and proper serve only to oppress. As the Constitution endures, persons in every generation can invoke its principles in their own search for greater freedom. That was Justice Kennedy in 2003. I was fascinated that in this most recent term of the Supreme Court, when the Supreme Court decided the same-sex marriage case, Obergefell, that toward the end of his majority opinion in that case, Justice Kennedy, without quoting himself, simply almost word for word made the, made the same statement. So this, it's, it's in cases like those where you find that the ideas that were planted by Magna Carta certainly bear modern fruit. Now, one last thing uh, before I turn all, wrap all this up, and that is a word about the documents that still exist. I mean, Magna Carta is still physically with us. There are copies of the charter from 1215. Um, no printing press in those days. Scribes were writing out copies of Magna Carta. Apparently, it was intended 
that a copy of the 1215 charter go to each county in England, and they would be writing them out and getting them out to the various counties. Four of those Magna Cartas survive, one at Salisbury Cathedral, one at Lincoln, two in the British Library. The Lincoln Cathedral copy was on loan to the Library of Congress fairly recently for an exhibit. Um, there are 17 extant copies of Magna Carta from 1215 to 1297. Uh, all of those copies are in England except for two, one's in Australia and one's in Washington at the National Archives. Um, I was on an airplane one time flying to London and my seatmate was um, a lawyer from Texas who was the personal lawyer to Ross Perot, a man of some means as we know. Well, <laughs> Ross Perot, I guess, decided he had pretty much everything else and he would like to have a copy of Magna Carta. <laughs> right. So why not? Why not indulge himself? He heard that there was a family in England that owned a copy of the 1297 charter, so he sent this lawyer over to bargain for it, and they struck a deal for $1.5 million. This is back in the 1980s when a million dollars really bought you something like, <laughs> <laughs> like a 1297 Magna Carta. So I asked this lawyer, I said, but England must have laws about exporting its patrimony and all that. I mean, you brought a copy of Magna Carta out of England. How'd you do it? He said, well, first I rolled it up and put it in a mailing tube. <laughs> I said, you put Magna Carta in a mailing tube. I said, but then you get to the, don't, you have customs agents and all that at the airport. So he said, yes, I took it to Heathrow. And the agent asked me, you know, what do you have in the tube? And he said, I have a copy of Magna Carta. Go right through, mate, no problem. <laughs> So, presumably thinking it's a facsimile right in that mailing tube of Magna Carta, so he, he got it home. It was put on display. Well, time passed, and I guess, as people sometimes do, Mag uh, Ross Pro decided he didn't need this copy of Magna Carta anymore, and he's going to put it on up for auction, Sotheby's Auction House in New York. Well, another man of some means named David Rubenstein, who you know of because he's been very generous to Monticello and to Mount Vernon and Montpelier. Um, David Rubenstein heard about it and bid through an agent uh, at the auction in New York and paid uh, $21.5 million. Well, that's, I mean, no wonder Ross Pro has money. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's a nice, even granting inflation, I mean, from 1.5 to 21.5, he made himself some change there in that transaction. So uh, the... National Archives about, were about to put this new copy on display, and they asked me if I'd come up and give a lecture. So I said, sure, I'd be happy to come. So each Thursday, the Washington Post has a little box. It has three or four things that are happening the next week that you might find interesting that you might like to do. So on this particular Thursday, the Washington Post had this entry saying, uh, Professor A.E. Dick Howard of the University of Virginia on uh, Tuesday, March the 10th at 7.30, will be at the National Archives to talk about his book, The Road from Runnymede, and his purchase of a copy of Magna Carta. <laughs> his purchase of a copy of Magna Carta for $21.5 million. <laughs> well, I went home that night, told my wife, I said, Mary, we're going to start getting some very interesting phone calls. <laughs> Any professor who can lay down $21.5 million has got some more where that came from. I said, don't ask any questions. Just accept those invitations. Well, it, my 15 minutes or 15 seconds of fame passed fairly, fairly quickly. So I went and, went and gave my lecture. So um, you, there, there is basically the story I've asked the question, does Magna Carta matter? I would argue that it has had a great deal more impact in American history and constitutionalism than it has in the country of its birth. We don't live in feudal times and we're not worried about the pretensions of monarchs like King John, uh, but it seems to me if one wishes the quintessential representation of how you embark on the search for ordered liberty, I think Magna Carta represents that very nicely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
I think we have a few minutes for some questions, and I understand, <clears throat> excuse me, I understand there are mics um, on either side, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So, shall we, does it, on, on the other side, the other side in the back? Yes. A remarkable document. Thank you. You spoke about the American development of judicial review, that the Constitution was supreme. In Great Britain, which does not have a constitution, how is judicial review exercised? I think that the question was, we know about judicial review in this country, how is it exercised in Great Britain? That's, that's a very useful question with which to start because I made the comment a moment ago about the divergence between Britain and America in the 18th century, how we embarked on the road to constitutional supremacy and judicial review and the British stuck with the principle of parliamentary supremacy. In theory, parliament is still supreme. They can make and repeal laws at will. The British have always said that there are restraints of custom and tradition and convention which would keep parliament from doing crazy things. Well, that may, <laughs> that may or may not be totally satisfying. Parliament is a body of citizens like others. Um, so. Today in the United Kingdom, they have an interesting middle road between outright supremacy of parliament and judicial review a la Marbury versus Madison. They have something called the Human Rights Act in 1998. That empowers English judges to declare acts of parliament incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. England, the UK, is a member of the European Union, therefore the European Convention applies in the UK as it does on the continent. And what that means is somebody complains about an act of parliament, says it's, un, it's in violation of the European Convention. If the judge agrees with that complaint, he or she hands down this declaration of incompatibility, which places a political duty on the government to come in and change the the relevant statute. It's not a legal duty, so it's not like an order from the U.S. Supreme Court, but in fact it seems to have worked out pretty well for the most part. The government has come in with an appropriate bill, so that's kind of a middle course, uh, some effort to bridge the difference between judicial review on the one hand and parliamentary supremacy on the other. Question here. Question. I hope my information is correct. I understand that the Carter is essentially one long paragraph, and someone at some later date numbered all the concepts and 60 or some great right. number. Right. Were the barons nitpicking? Why did it take so many clauses to get their point across? You know, that's this is about this is the lecture I didn't give. So, <laughs> we'll do another lecture sometime just about Magna Carta itself. It'd be quite interesting. But she wrote, you, you probably most of you have looked at the chart, one of the charters themselves or at a picture of it. And it does look like one long sentence, does it? Of course, it's in Latin, which for a lot of people makes it a little more uh, inaccessible. It's not, there are no numbers in it. It's not like a modern statute where it's all broken down and paragraphed and the rest. Later scholars have broken it apart into 63 numbered sections. Now, as the years pass, parts of them were thrown out and put into other charters or repealed. But the, the numbers I mentioned, chapter 39, for example, is the one about law of the land. That's a later number that's assigned to it. Your question was interesting because you said, why are there so many things going on in there? The reason is, you don't think of Magna Carta as a statement of theory or principle. It's a very practical document. The barons had a bill of particulars. They had things the king was doing that they were not happy about. They also had allies, the city of London, the church, it's the English church, and others were all part of the game. They had various demands so that those various sections respond to very concrete complaints. I mean, I didn't talk about the other parts of the charter. This is the lecture I'm not giving today. But there are things about trade and commerce. There are things about uh, taking a property without compensation. There are provisions about how you administer justice on the courts and where trials shall be held. A lot of very hands-on things that are in there. So in that respect, I think, frankly, one of the reasons, one reason I like your question, one of the reasons that Magna Carta survived 
is that it wasn't theoretical. It was really very much in the sort of Anglo-American tradition of practical responses to real-world problems. So I think that's maybe the <laughs> could be a longer <laughs> response, but I think maybe that I hope that's kind of where where, where you were, were going. Yes, sir. In regards to constitutional law here in this country today, would you comment as far as the legality of presidential decisions that are made? Oh, my goodness. Did, did you hear the question? I mean, being asked. Help. Are we about to run out of time, Mr. Chairman? <laughs> so, I, I served in the Army many years ago, and this is called fragging the commander. You'd roll a hand grenade into the commander's tent and hope to blow him up or something like that. But pres there is no aspect of American constitutional law which is more fraught with difficulty and more, uh, un more difficult to untangle than presidential power. Because you start with the Constitution, separation of powers, three branches, familiar sort of arrangement, and you think of the chief executive as an executive, that his function is to execute the laws. Well, from the beginning, there have always been zones where the foreign affairs, commander-in-chief powers, and things which don't fit neatly into that tripartite sort of arrangement. So you have Washington, you have uh, Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, uh, you have Harry Truman and the steel mills during the Korean War. You have modern presidents, Obama, for example, especially in an age where you have gridlock between the branches. You have the president reaching out by way of executive order. It seems to me generally accepted that there are zones of presidential authority that don't depend strictly on the acquiescence of Congress. That doesn't carry you very far in answering, well, how much authority does he have? One reason it's so problematical that the answer to your question doesn't come easily is that it's an area where the Supreme Court is never very comfortable. They're not very good at arbitrating quarrels where the Congress says, no, the president shouldn't be doing that, and the president does it anyway. So with the court, unless the court comes in with a categorical answer, it's really left to the political process. And I mean, I guess one way of thinking about the very interesting question you put is that not every constitutional question yields a Supreme Court answer to it. There's some very important questions which ultimately belong to the political process and we hope the good judgment of the American people. Yes, Does Viking law uh, impact or did it influence the Magna Carta oh, and if so, how? Now that's yet another lecture. We're gonna have Viking law. <laughs> We're we going to have a whole series of lectures here. It uh, better have because that's what I've been telling people. Okay. <laughs> if you have Viking ancestors, I'm not going to mess with you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I know where to, where to. My, my Scottish ancestors were lowlanders who were hanging around Edinburgh when the Highlanders were getting dirks out and the like. But I started in 1215. If we had more time, and if I wish to exhaust the patience of my audience, we would have started a lot further back. Because it's interesting, when the, mar when the barons came to the bargaining table at Runnymede in 1215, they would have you believe that they weren't simply asking you to enunciate a new set of rights. They were standing on what they would call the ancient constitution. And they had this almost mythologized notion that somehow before the Normans arrived in 1066, there was this kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, nirvana, that it was, you know, it probably wasn't all that great. I think it was tough on Angles and Saxons. But the notion was that there was this pre-existing time when kings understood the limits on their power and local people had more say. I think there's some truth to that. I think, in fact, before the Norman conquest, that even kings tended to be re confirmed when a new king came to power by the local village. It was much more localized, it was more decentralized. What the Normans, what the Angevin kings like Henry II brought was centralization. It was Federalist and Anti-Federalist, though they didn't call it that. So yes, I think the Vikings made a contribution to the sense of Anglo-Saxon government and constitutionalism, but as the centuries passed, it's become heavily mythologized. It's what historians call Whig history, 
the notion that you start with this wonderful regime and you carry it forward to this inevitable <coughs> levels of, 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 of progress. So I guess my answer to your question is a qualified yes. Is that, I hope, okay. <laughs> over, uh, over here, yes, sir. Professor, you said that the Magna Carta was renumbered by later editors. Um, is that a consistent scheme, or over the years since the first renumbering, has it been changed? If I look up section 32, okay. am I going to find two separate passages? You, you will find this. This is interesting. I'm, I'm sure all of you will rush home and either go to your computer <laughs> or pull books off the shelf. And actually, it wouldn't be a bad exercise if there's one thing I would ask you to do sometime, not necessarily this afternoon, get a hold of a copy of Magna Carta. Look at the actual text of it. Skim through. A lot of it won't mean anything because it's a lot of feudal arrangements and medieval talk and all that. But here and there, something will catch your eye, such as proportionality of punishments, due process of law, law of the land, that sort of thing. The numbering system is a little bit tricky because the original charter had 60 to 63 chapters, but in 1225 there was a major revision of the charter. They pulled out the parts that dealt with the forest laws. That was a very special issue. And then they renumbered what was left. And by the way, this may amuse you, the name Magna Carta, which instinctively would tell us, oh, that's a big deal, right? The great charter. It didn't have that name in the beginning. It came to be Magna Carta because when they took out the forest laws and put them in a separate charter, that was the smaller one, and what was left was the bigger one. So Magna Carta. Well, <laughs> you see how much mythology grows around that. So they renumbered at that time, and I think there's sort of a convention that the numbering you will typically run into now is the numbering from 1225. For example, I referred to chapter 39, it became chapter 29 in the 1225 charter, and that's a lot of books that you read will re refer to that. So whichever version you, you come upon, uh, look at it sometime. And you know most of the sections have actually been repealed. On the law books of England today, I think exactly three sections remain in force, including what I call chapter 39. Uh, chapter 1 about the English church being free still survives. Most of the rest have been abandoned because they're, they deal with problems that are no longer current. So when you read it, don't read it as a present statement of English law. Read it as part of the story of Anglo-American constitutionalism. It's way in the back. Yes, considering the long-running issue of divine right of kings and divine right of the Catholic Church, particularly at that time. How did the Pope respond to his null and void statement being yeah. null and voided? <laughs> not very well. <laughs> he, was not, he was not happy. This was Pope Innocent III, and this was a clever move on King John's part because having struggled with the Pope, I mentioned earlier that he finally accepted in effect, this is feudalism where if you held a piece of property, you always held it of someone at the next level above you, ultimately the king. And the king was basically saying, at least in theory, that he held all of England subject to the Pope, Innocent III. And when he did that, of course, Innocent was happy to play the king's game of saying, right, you signed this charter under duress. That's a familiar English principle. If a contract is made under duress, it's null and void. And the Pope said, right, the king did this unwillingly. He was under duress. This, problem, this uh, charter is null and void. So I think even though, if you, if you accept that the Pope was calling the shots at that point, it didn't settle matters at all. Actually, England was back to a stage of civil war by the end of 1215. The struggle continued. That's why the death of King John matters. That when Henry III came along, the nine-year-old king, then somebody hit upon the idea, we better bring Magna Carta back into the picture. So the survival of Magna Carta doesn't and did not depend on whether in legal theory it was actually controlling law at the, at the time or not. It actually takes you back to the question of traditions going back before 1215, that if Magna Carta was thought and argued by the barons to represent the considered conventional traditional judgments about 
rights in a, in a kingdom, then that was what had lasting power as opposed to the document as a, as a legal text. Um, yes, right, right here. Yes. Um, how, how did they decide which of all the probably thousands of barons were going to go to Runnymede and do this? And if you were a lord, could you go? Yeah. Or it, it seems like it could be very chaotic. It, <laughs> it was chaotic for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, it was the usual sort that some people were understood to be more powerful and have more influence than others, and they were the ones who were basically in, in control. They did have to bring on to the, into the picture of the church, the townspeople of London, some others who were part of it. There's an interesting step that was taken, which I didn't mention, and that is after the charter was agreed to by the king, after he put his seal on it, the barons knew that he didn't want to keep his promise. I mean, who would trust King John? This, the, this is the villain of the century. So they, in the charter, it provides at the end of the document for a committee of 25 barons. And they name who the 25 are. And these, responsive to your question, they were the ones that seemed to be the natural leadership. 25 barons to enforce the charter. Uh, this is interesting because today we have an amending process. We have the supremacy clause that I've already mentioned, Article 6 of the Constitution. Back in the Middle Ages, they weren't thinking about supremacy clauses, but they were thinking about enforceability. How do you make someone who doesn't want to keep his promises do it? So they had these 25 barons, and the charter said, rather hopefully I would suggest, that if the king didn't keep his promises, the 25 barons were use the language of the charter, distress and, and distrain the king. <laughs> Which is to say they put so they lay siege to his castles. What kind of remedy is that? <laughs> That's basically saying you're back to civil war again. So it, it was a clumsy attempt, but it does anticipate the question that all modern constitutional makers have. The question implied by the question about presidential power it's the question of, okay, you lay down the rules of the game in a constitution, how do you enforce it? How do you make it work? Well, in modern America, we look to the Supreme Court, but I think we look beyond that. Just as Magna Carta represents traditional Anglo-Saxon and, Anglo and, and English jurisprudence, I think we look in this country, I, this is my personal view, not only to what the Supreme Court says, I think we look to what shall I call it, constitutional culture. I mean, we look to habits that people acquire uh, through generations of understanding that there are rules to the game. You contest an election, you come up on the losing side, you withdraw from the field, you fight the next election. That's not the way it operates in most countries. I mentioned that practically every country in the world has a constitution. One or two exceptions, Israel, the UK, one or two others. In most of those countries, constitutions are scraps of paper that, I mean, in Zimbabwe they have a constitution. Do you think Mugabe pays any attention to it? <laughs> of course not. He does what he pleases. In Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, do you think Chavez cared what the constitution said? And I could give you other examples, but I think in our system, and this is Anglo-American constitutionalism, I think we depend on what I would call constitutional culture that ultimately the real foundation of constitutional liberty depends in part on the Supreme Court, but it depends finally on the people who live under it to accept those, those norms and, and those habits. Um, Paul, are we okay, one more? Do I need to turn it on? Yes, ma'am. You mentioned uh, the city of London being involved. My recollection of English history classes years ago was that this was a compact between the king and the barons and it didn't apply to the common people. But so there, the, there were clauses that involved the merchant class yes. or the higher classes you know, that's as well. A, I'd love that. See, I plant these questions so we can <laughs> end up with a, <laughs> one that's so appropriate. That's a really lovely question on which to end because it raises the question, was this a selfish contract between the king and the barons? Were the barons looking out for themselves? Well, of course they were. They had above all their selfish interests. They didn't want the king to take their property and tax them and all the rest of it. But beyond that, I think whether because they were principled or perhaps more likely because they realized they needed a larger body of support, 
the barons produced, somebody wrote up, the, the, wrote up Magna Carta in a way that brought other people into the picture. Uh, trade and commerce. You don't think of 13th century England as being a mercantile period. It's mostly a landholding. Most people are on the land, but London was already a thriving center of commerce with the continent, so you have provisions that sound, one of these 63 provisions, it sounds very technical. Magna Carta says that fish weirs shall be removed from the Thames and the Medway. Well, what in the world is that doing in Magna Carta? It's because they were impediments to the free flow of trade. And if you open up trade, another provision says that merchants shall be free to go and come from the ki kingdom. That's like a European Union free trade, you know, free mobility of labor provision. All of this is with a notion that the flow of trade makes people more prosperous. Finally, and, and one reason I'm glad you asked the question, there is a provision near the end of Magna Carta that says the king has made all these promises to the barons and to others, and just as he's made assurances to the barons, they in turn should make assurances to the people under them. So now there's some historical debate over who counted as a free man in 13th century England, but it was a lot more people than the barons. It might have been as much as 50% of the population. So at least on the face of the charter, you have a guarantee that suggests the extension and generality of these guarantees beyond a privileged class. And that's important. That's why I'm so glad you asked the question because it means, I think the better reading of Magna Carta is that however selfish the barons may have been, other people potentially had a stake in it. And again, I suspect that's one reason why it survived as it, as it did. Paul, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.